Good morning, everyone. Glad to see you this morning. Glad to be upright. I'm just telling you that. If you were uh, here last week, you'll notice that Pastor Libin preached, and I was actually scheduled to preach. But I decided to do something smart a couple weeks ago and try to lift two water cases at the same time. Uh, my back decided otherwise, and I injured myself pretty good. So it's nice to be able to be mobile. I have to move around a little bit. If I get stiff, it locks up, and then I'll lean on that little stool there. But it is great to be here and bring the message this morning. Is it hot outside? Yeah, it's a little hot outside. You know, I was watching the Cubs game yesterday, Chicago Cubs baseball game, and at one point a front moved through, because they're having a heat spell as well, and they stood and applauded the breeze. And that's how hot it is in, in our country right now. But uh, it, I guess a cool front or a cold front is moving down here soon, so we should be um, feeling better here soon. Hey, you know, a couple of years ago, several years ago, in fact, a movie came out, a most unusual movie. It was unusual to the fact that it had no foul language, it had um, no violence, it had no sex, it had a list of unknown actors and actresses, and in spite of all of that, it was nominated for several Academy Awards, and one of them being Best Picture, which it won. I don't know if many of you remember it. Maybe if you're over the age of 40, you might remember this movie. Hey, let's listen to a little clip of the music. Some of you are like thinking about this right now. You know that scene when they're running on the beach really in slow motion? This movie was about a true story. A guy named Eric Little was competing for the country of Britain to go after gold in track and field in the 1924 Olympics. And he found out at one point that the qualifying heats were going to be on Sunday. Eric made a decision that he couldn't run, he couldn't qualify on Sunday because Sunday was a day different than the other six. You, you understand that Eric followed God. He had a relationship with God. He was a Christian. And he knew that Sunday was the Sabbath. It was a day for God. And in his conviction and in his stance in life, he said, I can't do it. I can't run and compete. Despite pressure from the government, his countrymen, fellow athletes, he had the conviction and the strength to stand and say, I can't do it. It's God's day. I'm going to honor him with that decision. See, that movie, The Chariots of Fire, was all about Eric Little and his defining moment. And if you remember the movie at all, there's a part in the movie where he meets up with his coach and his coach says to him, Eric, I know the qualifying heat is on a Sunday, but really, it's just a qualifying heat. It doesn't matter that much. And after a short pause, Eric says, yeah, it does. It does matter. See, when we see conviction of that kind, we can't help but stand in awe. We see that all the time of people, and like we see these stories and like, man, Look at the conviction. Look at them standing strong because we all know how easy it is for people to cave in to the pressures around them. We see it all the time. People give it in to the voices around them where they don't stand strong. They give in. So when we see people who stand with conviction, we go, wow, that's awesome. The other day I was on the internet and I was doing some research and I read an article by a guy named Tom Walker who told a story of about a young man named Jacob Adam. Now, you may not know him, I didn't know him, but his story is unbelievable. Jacob Adam lived in South Sudan during the time of civil war and unrest. And at the age of six, him and his older cousin were out in the field tending to their flock when they turned back and they looked at their home and they saw their village on fire. They knew that at that moment, they had lost everything, their family, their friends, and their village. 
So they decided to escape and to flee into the forest. And during that moment of escaping, Jacob made a decision. At six years of age, one day I will return to my home country. And while they were in the forest, they decided to go to Ethiopia to get away, to flee from the unrest. Ethiopia was 1,000 miles away, six years old. They had to overcome rival militia. They had to overcome attacking lions, lack of food. And these two young men made it. They made it to Ethiopia. And during their time there, they were picked and drawn to be able to go to the United States for education. And Jacob ended up in the state of Michigan where he went through education and he made a decision with a conviction that one day I will return to South Sudan and I will open up a medical clinic to help treat the people in my war-torn country. See, when we see conviction like Jacob's, we can't help but look at what conviction truly is. Warren Worsby, he is an author and pastor, he says this about conviction. Convictions are the compasses of life that keep us moving in the right direction. They are the foundation stones that help us stand firm when everything around us is shaking and changing. I would venture to say that Jacob had that type of conviction. He was driven by that conviction, that nothing was going to stop him to get back to South Sudan, that no matter what it cost him, even if it cost him his life, he was going to hold on to that conviction and eventually go back and help the people of his country. So I have to ask myself, and maybe you do as well this morning, is there anything that you feel so strongly about that you'd be willing to stand and stand and stand no matter what it costs you? Well, today we're going to look at conviction. We're going to look at what does it mean to stand strong in everyday life. And we're going to look at a character in the Old Testament and we're going to learn and how we can apply that type of conviction into our life. So if you have your Bible with you, if you have your Bible app on your phone, pull it out. We're going to look at the book of Daniel this morning, chapter 1. We're going to walk through the chap first chapter of the book of Daniel. So if you find Ezekiel in the Old Testament, go to the right. Ezekiel is a big book. Daniel is right next to it. You can just find it right there to the right. All right, let's start at the very first verse. Follow along with me. Daniel chapter 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with parts of the vessels of the house of God. And he carried them into the land of Shinar to the house of his God, and he brought the vessels into the treasure house of his God. Let me point out something right off here at the beginning of verse number two that's very important. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. That's important to note. The Lord gave. The Lord is behind what's about to take place here. The Lord's behind it. See, what happened uh, at this time, God's people had started to drift away from worshiping God. They started to worship false idols. They started living in wicked ways. And God said prophet after prophet after prophet to warn the people, say, hey, turn from your lifestyle. Turn from your wicked ways or God's going to send discipline. Well, the people didn't. The people didn't listen. They continued to live in their wicked ways. And so God fulfilled his promise as only God can. And he sent discipline. And this discipline came in the form of captivity by the country of Babylon, which at the time was the greatest world superpower. All right, let's follow in verse 3. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, the chief of his officials, to bring in some of the sons of Israel, including some of the royal family and of the nobles. Youths in whom there was no defect, who were good-looking, showing intelligence in every branch of wisdom, endowed with understanding and discerning knowledge, and who had ability for serving in the king's court. 
and he ordered him to teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. The king appointed for them a daily ration from the king's choice food and from the wine which he had drank and appointed that they should be educated three years and at the end there would be, they were to enter the king's personal service. So Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar orders his chief of staff, Ashpenaz, to find the cream of the crop, the best of the best, the blue chippers, if you will, of the Jewish youth. And you can see that he has outlined in this passage a very specific criteria that he's looking for in these Jewish youth. He's looking for, first of all, strong physical specimen boys. He wants, the, he wants like the little Arnold Schwarzeneggers. He wants guys that look like the rock. I mean, they look perfectly physical. No defects, no handicaps. He wants them to look good. Not only does he want them to look good, he wants them to be smart. He wants them to have some a high IQ. He wants them to have some knowledge and understanding and some wisdom. And not only that, they have to be street smart. They got to be able to survive on the streets. But not only that, they have to have the potential for leadership. See, Nebuchadnezzar wasn't the king of the greatest world power at the time because he was a dummy. He was a smart king. He surrounded himself with smart people, smart men, advisors, counselors. And that's what he was going to do with these young boys. He was going to prepare them, select them, teach them, so that one day they would be on his cabinet. He wanted him to be their counselors and advisors. So to prepare them, he enrolls them in like a three-year course, a college course, if you will, so that they can learn everything about the culture of Babylon. He covered every single basis of preparation for these young boys, all the way down to the menu of what they would be eating. They were going to eat the same food that the king ate. Okay, we're talking filet mignon. We're taking, talking ribeye. We're talking the best food out there. He said, I want them to eat off my food. I want them to drink the wine out of my cellar. Well, another important note to understand here is that most Old Testament scholars believe that these Jewish boys were between the ages of 13, 14, and 15. Think of somebody you know that age. We're talking eighth graders, freshmen, sophomores in high school. It was very clear what Nebuchadnezzar was trying to do because he knew that these young boys were susceptible to being brainwashed. And that's exactly what he's going to do. He's going to brainwash them. All right, let's pick it up in verse 6. Now among them from the sons of Judah were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And then the commander of the officials assigned new names to them. And to Daniel he assigned the name Belteshazzar, To Hananiah, Shadrach. To Mishael, Meshach. And to Azariah, Abednego. Think about it for a moment. These young boys have been taken from their home, taken from their homeland, They've been taken from their parents. There's no mention of any parent authority. They've been given new authority, a new homeland, a new culture, a new education, a new diet. Now, all of a sudden, they've been given a new name. Now, we don't have time to go into what these names meant, but these were names of gods that the Babylonians worshipped. They worshipped a ton of gods, and these were names given to these boys. You could see that Nebuchadnezzar was trying to thrust onto these young 13, 14, 15-year-olds every form of pagan worship. He wanted to make them in and out Babylonian, transform how they thought, walked, talked, acted, reacted. This was a lot of pressure for these young boys. It'd be a lot of pressure for any of us to go through, but these young boys were under it. He was preparing these boys to someday be in his cabinet, and they, they needed to think and be Babylonian. So let's see what happens in verse 8. But Daniel made up his mind that he would not defile himself with the king's choice food or with the wine which he drank. Something happens here that's very important. 14-year-old Daniel decides that he can't eat the food that the king's offering. 
Now, there's nothing wrong with the food. There's nothing wrong with the food other than it's been sacrificed to idols. See, Daniel grew up hearing God's law. From the moment he was born, his family taught God's law. He learned God's law. He memorized God's law. And he knew that God's law prohibited him from eating food that had been sacrificed to idols. So him and his buddies were presented with the dilemma. Do we eat this food? Do we eat this food and honor the king but dishonor God? Or do we reject the food, dishonor the king, and honor God? Honor the king or honor God? We can't do both. But we see Daniel had already made a decision. He says, as for me, I need to honor God, therefore I can't eat the meat. I can't eat the food. That would be to defile my body. It would go against God's law. I can't eat the food. This leads us to our first insight this morning, insight number one. God-honoring decisions reflect the conviction to honor God above all else. God-honoring decisions reflect the conviction to honor God above all else. And we need to look really carefully at what's going on here. What really is going on here is very important for us to see. Daniel's first decision, the first decision he made to honor God has nothing to do with him eating the food. Eating the food is a second decision. The first decision, decision number one, when faced with a choice, I will always honor God above all else. That's his first decision. I will honor God above all else, which was simply a reflection of the commandment number one, thou shall have no other gods besides me. That was the choice he made. Very similar, Eric made that same decision. The guy I mentioned at the the beginning in the introduction, Eric Little, he made a decision. I honor God. Sunday's the Sabbath. I'm going to honor God by not running. In order to honor God, I can't run on Sunday. And in both cases, their everyday decisions were shaped by a more basic, primary, and real decision, which was when faced with a choice, I will always choose to honor God. So when you think about it, when you stop and think about it, every decision that you and I make every single day is a secondary decision. That is, when faced with a choice, I choose to honor God above all else. And if you say, yes, I will honor God above all else, then all other decisions simply become a reflection of that decision. Do you see that? Let me give you a for instance. Let me give you a personal example. Uh, My daughter, uh, Jordan, is about to turn 25 years old. And she started working full-time when she was 16. And her eyes lit up when she started getting paychecks. She's like, money, yes! 16-year-old getting paychecks. It was pretty exciting. And see, my daughter, Jordan, loves, loves, loves concerts. She loves going to as many concerts as she can. She also loves to collect sports memorabilia, which both have pricey, have a high price tag, right? They cost a lot. Jordan made a decision a long time ago when she became a follower of God to honor God. So when she started receiving paychecks, she started to give the first fruits of that labor to God. We never required our daughters to tithe. We modeled it as parents, but the girls saw that in us, and my oldest daughter, to this day, continues to give the first fruits of her, of her labor. Now, there's times when there's been a concert or some collectible that she wants to have, and she's like, you know what? First fruits has to go to God. And that means I might have to say no to that concert or I might have to say no to that sports memorabilia because my first decision is to honor God. Now, she has to wrestle a little bit. Is she wrestling with that decision to what not to buy? In all reality, she's not a secondary wrestling situation. She's honestly wrestling with God. And she had wrestled with God early in her life that made a decision that said, I'm going to honor God. 
It's not wrestling with the money. It's wrestling with God. And if I truly want to honor God, I'm going to give God the first fruits of my labor. See, every day we make decisions. Every day you and I make hundreds of decisions. We make decisions on how we're going to spend our time. We make decisions on how we're going to spend our money. We, spend, we make decisions about how we're going to treat our bodies, how we're going to conduct ourselves at work, how do we handle issues of personal purity, how we're going to handle people and relationships. There are hundreds of them every single day. And I guess what I'm saying at this point, at this very, very first point, of all the decisions that you and I make, it comes down to one question. Who am I going to honor? Am I going to honor me, myself, or am I going to honor God? It's so easy to think, and I've done it enough times in my own life, that how I spend my money, I'm wrestling with money. I'm not. How I'm wrestling with honoring God in my relationships. Is it with the relationship? It's with God. Let's say I have to speak truth to someone that God has put it on my heart, that I need to speak truth in love to someone that I know, that I know that if I speak truth to them, they may respond in a not-so-favorable way. Am I wrestling with that person or am I wrestling with God? Because if I'm wrestling with God, the choice is obvious. I have to honor him, and I need to speak truth to that person. We think about wrestling with our jobs. We, we, we think about wrestling with our time. Let's need, we need to call it what it is. We're wrestling with God. Daniel had already wrestled with God. 14-year-old Daniel had come to a conclusion. When given a choice, I will choose to honor God above all else. And then what he ate simply was a reflection of that decision. So let's pick up the second half of verse 8. So Daniel sought permission from the commander of the officials that he might not defile himself. 14-year-old Daniel, he goes to the commander to ask for permission not to eat the food. He doesn't whine, he doesn't cry, he doesn't rebel, he doesn't throw a fit. He humbly goes up and just asks permission. Pretty classy for a 14-year-old, wouldn't you say? Pretty wise that he went up and just asked permission. Verse 9, now God granted Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the commander of the officials. And the commander of the officials said to Daniel, I'm afraid of the Lord my king who has appointed you your food and your drink. For why should he see your faces looking more haggard than the youth?" who are your own age. Then you would make me forfeit my head to the king. Daniel shares his request to the commander, and the commander says, Daniel, buddy, I like you and all, but think about what you're asking. All these boys are eating the greatest food in the world, and you want to go on the slim trim diet. Man, if I was to present you and you're looking skinny and all that, this isn't good, buddy. You know, that's not your head on the chopping block. It's my head on the chopping block. I don't think we can do this. I don't think this is a good idea. Daniel's got to come back. Verse 11, Daniel said to the overseer, whom the commander of the officials had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, please test your servants for 10 days and let us be given some vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance be observed in your presence and the appearance of the youth who are eating the king's choice food and deal with your servants according to what you see. Daniel I, says, I've got an idea, Mr. Commander, sir. 10 days. Vegetables and water. That's it. Ten days. And then after those ten days, you bring us up in front of all the other guys and you judge us accordingly. You just, you put us out there because we trust God, but again, we'll, we'll, we'll be responsible and obedient to what you see. Verse 14. So the commander listened to them in this matter and tested them for ten days. He says, okay, you got it. Vegetables you want, vegetables you got. They're coming your way. You got it, here it is. Which brings us to our second insight this morning, which is this. Conviction needs to be expressed before it can be rewarded. 
Conviction needs to be expressed before it can be rewarded. Wouldn't it be nice to know the outcome of God-honoring decisions before we make it? Wouldn't it be nice to know what the end result of those conversations would be or those situations would be? Man, it would take away a lot of pain, wouldn't it? If we just knew the outcome. And when you think about it, I can testify from personal example on this one that when, when, when we are to honor God and we have to make tough decisions, it's going to take a lot of effort. It's going to take some faith. It's going to take some trust. And every time you make a God-honoring decision, you go against an entire culture. Every time you make a God-honoring decision, you go against your own nature, your sinful flesh. Every, take, every time you make a God-honoring decision, you go against all the voices of the people around you. And when you're going to go against your own flesh and you're going against the people around you and you're going against the flow of an entire culture, God-honoring decisions are going to be tough ones. So what happens? We tend to tread lightly. We're like, oh, if I only knew the outcome of that decision, if I only knew what's going to happen, then I'd be more likely to make that God-honoring decision. But you know what? That's not the way it works. That's not the way God works. God says from, Revelation, from Genesis to Revelation, you step out and you trust me. You express your conviction in a tangible way. You step out and put yourself on a proverbial limb of faith and you trust me. You walk by faith, not by sight. Oh man, I want to walk by sight. I think a lot of us want to walk by sight. We want to see the outcome. But God said it doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way. We walk by faith. Daniel walked by faith. Daniel, 14-year-old Daniel, Daniel was trusting God that he was going to make him physically strong and look good and that he was going to be able to convince, that God was going to convince this commander, this unbelieving commander of another country, that Daniel looked good and can continue to eat the food that he was eating. He was out there on a limb. Well, let me give you a practical example for all of us. Let's say that your boss asks you to shade the truth a little bit, to be less than honest. And you go home and you're wrestling in your stomach. There's this gut feeling. You're like, man, what he's asking me to do, he's asking me to lie. And I, I don't know if I can do that. I, you know, as a, as a, as a Christian, I, I can't do that. I have to honor God and I have to tell the truth. And the chances are, you know it and I do, that you're going to have to go into your boss's office. And you're, with humility, you're going to have to make a decision that says, sir, I can't go through with what you've asked. And in all reality, you're putting yourself out on a limb of faith to trust that God is going to help you through that because in all reality, this decision may cost you your job. You've got to honor God. And I've got to put myself out on that limb. Eric Little put himself out on that limb. Jacob Adam put himself on that limb. My own daughter has put herself on that limb to trust God that God would provide even though she didn't see the outcome in advance. And that's the way it works. God asks us to express our, uh, our conviction in God-honoring decisions before we realize the outcome. It's called faith because God believes the greatest place for us to be, the richest place for us to be, the most abundant place for us to be is out there on the limb trusting him, putting our lives out there to trust him because we know that he will reward us for those decisions. We're counting on him to come through. Can I, can I be so bold to say that if you haven't been out on the limb trusting God for some decisions in your life, if you haven't found yourself day after day in a position where you're saying, I'm spending every day here, God, putting myself out there, and I won't make it if you don't step in. If you haven't been doing that, you might not be making many 
God-honoring decisions. When you go month after month, perhaps year after year, never finding yourself in a position to really have to lean on God, it's probably a statement about who, whose decisions you're honoring. I'm just being real. Daniel was out on a limb. He's involved in this test. He's placed his future obedience in the hands of an unbelieving commander. So let's see what happens. In verse 15, at the end of the 10 days, their appearance seemed better and they were fatter than all the youths who had been eating the king's choice food. How'd you like to have said that about you? Man, you're looking fatter than the rest. Man, you are a fatty. Woo! I don't think many of us would say that to anyone, but for Daniel and his buddies, this is a compliment. God stepped in. God rewarded their faith. God rewarded them for being committed. Conviction. Look what happens in verse 16 through 20. Sit back and just hear what happens. So the overseer continued to withhold their choice food and wine that they were to drink and kept giving them vegetables. As for these four youths, God gave them knowledge and intelligence and every branch of wisdom and literature. Daniel even understood all kinds of visions and dreams. And then at the end of the days which the king had specified for presenting them, the commander of the officials presented them before Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them, and out of all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And so they entered the king's personal service as for every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king consulted them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians, conjurers who were in all his realm. God not only helps them pass this ten-day test, but he makes them stronger and wiser. He allows Daniel to interpret, uh, interpret visions and dreams. And not only that they're better than the other youths, they're ten times better than Nebuchadnezzar's own cabinet. God steps in in a huge way. Which brings us to our third and last insight. Decisions that honor God always earn God's blessings. Decisions that honor God always earn God's blessing. God is the rewarder of faith in some way and in some time. God blesses the person who honors him. That's just the way God is. That's the story of scripture from Genesis to Revelation. Now I know some of you are thinking right now, Tim, this is great. I love hearing that, but you know what? I put myself out on a limb. I chose to honor God at a point in time in my life and it cost me my job. You know, I just, I've made a decision to honor God in a, in a strained relationship, but it's still strained today. I chose to honor God at some point to do something financially and I still haven't recovered and I don't know what to do. Can I say, hang in there? Wait on God? Based on all the pages of scripture, God will come through. But based on the scriptures like Romans chapter 8, verse 28, all things work together for good for those who will honor God above all else. Wait on him. Sooner or later, God in his perfect way and in his perfect timing, he will honor you. He's made a promise. He doesn't break promises. People break promises all the time. Friends, bosses, family members, we're human. We break them. That's what happens. But God's not human. God's perfect. Okay? God is holy. God doesn't make promises he can't keep. He makes a promise to honor you above all else when you honor him. God will never break his word. It would be against his nature. Now, it doesn't always come in the form of an external blessing, like a job or a relationship or something financial. Sometimes it comes in the form of character development. Sometimes it comes in the form of spirit, uh, fruit of the spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, something that you need, maybe something eternal. But in God's timing, in his way, in his perfect plan. Sooner or later, you can count on it. God's going to bless you. 
So just before I close this morning, I had one more thought. And this thought may be the most important thought of this whole chapter. What's the big deal about what Daniel and his buddies ate anyways? I mean, why is this chapter about eating food in Scripture? I mean, it seems like a silly thing. I mean, we've got a story about a lion's den coming up. We've got a story about a fiery furnace coming up. We've got visions and dreams being interpreted. Now we're talking about what they ate. I mean, I know it's in Scripture, and we've got to read it, and it's from the Bible, and I mean, it's, it's God's Word, but really, this food thing seems like such a little thing. You know what I think God would say to us? That's exactly why it's in there. Because it's a little thing. You see, what you eat is one of those everyday kind of decisions. And you know what? It's out of those everyday decisions of life that God says, I'm going to construct your life. And I'll put it this way. If you honor God in the everyday decisions of your life, he will honor you for a lifetime. If you honor God in the everyday decisions, the common everyday, the mundane, the routine decisions of life, God will honor you for a lifetime. Daniel served a lifetime. Look what it says in the last verse of chapter one. And Daniel continued into the first year of Cyrus the king. So you don't know the rest of the story yet, but Daniel ended up serving in a, in a position of authority for four kings. He's the only other person that I've read in scripture other than Jesus where there's no mention of sin. Now we know Daniel sinned. He's human. But there's no mention. He's an amazing man with an amazing story. And he showed that God honored him because he honored God. And it's just a story of conviction, standing strong in everyday life. You know, we'd love to learn about the lion's den story because then we go, that's courage and conviction. But by that time, Daniel's 70 years old. He's seen God's faithfulness through an entire life. To him, those lions are little lions. They're little kittens. Because God had been faithful throughout his entire life that those lions were no match for God. God had a track record of faithfulness. And if I could invite Daniel on stage this morning and say, and ask Daniel one question, I think I would ask him this. Daniel, what was the most significant event in your life? I had the sinking suspicion that he would say, you know, when I was 14 years old, I made a decision not to eat the king's food. And God honored me because of that decision. And out of that decision, my life was built on honoring God because every time I honored God, God honored me in return. And he just stood in there, and God honored me for a lifetime. And I just stood up for him, and it was that decision I made at 14. See, friends, it all starts with the everyday decisions of life. The, the little decisions that you don't think matter, that I don't think matter, they matter. What you do with your time, what you do with your money, what you do with your energies and abilities, what you do in your relationships, what you do with your body, what you do with your personal purity, what you do uh, with all the issues that you, that you have to deal with every single day, on and on and on, they matter. They matter because it's out of those decisions, day after day, month after month, year after year, that God and you build a life. Now, I could say that a church society, there's many of you in here that are still in the first chapter of your walk with God. You're not in the sixth chapter. You're not in the lion's den. You're at the first chapter. And may I say that the decisions you make today, the decisions you make tomorrow, the decisions that you'll make the next day will determine where you and God go the next five years, 15 years, 20 years, 30 years. Are you honoring God in the everyday decisions of your life? God does his greatest work, his finest work in and through the lives of people who stand up and say, God, I will honor you above all else in the everyday decisions of my life. We can trust God. So when we honor him, he will honor us in return. All we gotta do is stand strong.
Let's pray. God, this morning we thank you. We thank you for the opportunity that we can come to a church and worship you. That we can dive into your word, Lord, and we can be taught and we can be moved and we can be challenged. And Lord, this is a challenging message. Because so often, Lord, we make decisions that don't honor you. And we confess that this morning to you, Lord. That there are some of us in here this morning that have made decisions that have honored ourselves, our selfishness, and they haven't honored you. And Lord, we, we repent of that. We say we're sorry. And Lord, we want to turn to you this morning and we want to make that decision to honor you in every decision we make. The ones that we don't think matter to the ones that are of great value, they all matter to you. God, I pray this morning for anyone in this room that's making a decision in their relationship with you. Maybe they haven't crossed that line of faith where they've made a decision to surrender their hearts to your son Jesus. I pray that this morning, maybe that day, that they would just surrender and say, God, I can't live this life on my own anymore. I need you. I need your son Jesus in my heart. I need you today. Lord, I pray for them that they would make that decision to honor you above all else. God, thank you for your son Jesus. Thank you for what he's done for us on the cross and he continues to do in and through us. And we pray this in his name. Amen.